Time's wheel runs back or stops. Potter and clay endure. Robert Browning. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week, um, and I hope that you... uh, if you're a first-time listener, that you enjoy and will continue to listen and go back through our backlog. Or if you're a, obviously a returning listener, I hope you enjoy and continue to do so. So, um, I didn't have too much feedback from last week, although I did have someone point out that technically Korea and Japan are East Asian, and I did say that we were kind of concluding on that last week. Um, I was, and that is correct, um, and they're obviously widely part of um, East Asia, uh, but I was thinking more in terms of mainland and also where they are culturally as of our current time period, so 8,000 to 6,000 BC, BCE, so a um, little bit different, at least at this point in time, although, again, yes, in modern times, they are certainly very much aligned to East Asia, uh, so, um, but you know, that's kind of uh, obviously what we're going to be talking about this week. So we're going to go ahead and dive into what is now the countries of uh, Japan and Korea, as well as a, a few of the people living to the north of the great uh, Paikdu Mountains, uh, which are the, you know, the mountains of, um, uh, to the, they kind of form the border uh, of Korea and the, or I should say North Korea and uh, China and Russia. Uh, and yes, there is a North and South Korea as well. I, I did kind of misspoke. Maybe I should say the countries of the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Um, so, when last we talked about uh, DNA, uh, last week's episode essentially, um, of the various Asian groups, I mentioned a group that Melinda Yang referred to as the Amur Ancestry. Uh, and this refers to the Amur River, which flows through uh, Siberia and Mongolia. And this group spread all across what is now, you know, Mongolia, uh, parts of Russia's Far East and China's North. And the other groups she mentioned that I didn't talk about last week are the Jomon, Paleo-Siberian, uh, the Bat- Basil Ancestries, and Ancient Northern Siberian. All four of these groups contributed to the peoples we will be focusing on for the remainder of Asia this season. Uh, and we will start with um, the Jomon and their neighbors, neighbors and probably their cousins or sibling cultures known as the uh, Julmun of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, now, I know I mentioned the Jomon last season because at 10,000 BC, uh, the Jomon were in their incipient phase. Um, but I don't believe I mentioned much about the Korea, Korean Peninsula uh, other than broadly, you know, or I may have mentioned the uh, Julmun specifically because their um, cultural material hadn't really emerged yet, but I don't believe I really talked about them very much. Uh, but Julmun is the Korean word for comb pattern. Uh, this is one of the primary designs of early Neolithic sites in Korea, Japan, and parts of the Eurasian steppe in northeast China. It's a very similar type of pattern that I talked about when talking about the 
Jinglongwa cultures in our final Neolithic China episode. Um, it's an old pattern. It was probably in use by um, most, if not all, the peoples living in the areas that included, uh, you know, that includes the Paleolithic groups who, remember, in this part of the world, developed pottery uh, while they were all still very highly mobile hunter-gatherers. And I should also point out something that I haven't made particularly clear, at least in my opinion, uh, and there, I'm sure people have picked up on it, uh, but patterns on pottery are not the only factor used to identify a culture. Um, size, shape, what they were used for, ratio of, uh, I guess, the ingredients or the, um, uh, I guess, the makeup of the pottery themselves, like how much um, water was used to wet the clay, if it was baked, all that kind of things, all factor into what is considered like a culture's uh, pottery or what makes pottery tools kind of belong to the same culture. Now, a number of sites have been found dating to before to right around 8,000-ish in the center of the peninsula. And almost all of them are near major river bends or between two rivers, places like uh, Songdu-ri and Soro-ri. Uh, and there have been one did was found in a place in Korea's southwest called Sinbukri uh, that was nestled in a kind of a small valley in the mountains, not far from the modern city of Gwangju. But uh, there are tons of lakes, ponds, streams, etc. that can be found there near there. And then again, that's like the one place that's not directly on a river or near one. Um, and these are all classified as being in line technologically uh, as other Paleolithic sites in East Asia. Very few, if any, bladelets. A complete reliance on hunting and gathering. Uh, but... Again, with simple pots for cooking uh, nuts and making stews. Because, again, a lot of the wild nuts in the area, they're very highly, um, they have a lot of tannins and things like that that can make humans sick if they're not removed via a cooking process. Um, there is one known Paleolithic site in North Korea. It's right on the Tumen River, uh, which marks the border I believe, between North Korea and China. Now, it's possible that there are more undiscovered sites in that country. But as you might imagine, archaeological research is not high on their priority list. Uh, and even if it was, and they highly publicized it, I would take anything said about those with a very large grain of salt. Though I will say there probably weren't that many people living there um, near that river for long stretches of time at least during the periods we're focused on now, uh, with the climate just beginning to stabilize and warm up after the younger driest, the mountains were probably difficult and uncomfortable to live in full time. Of course, this was probably true of some of the sites in the south too, but it wouldn't have been quite as bad. Also, the sea levels were probably still lower, uh, and there was uh, more of a coastal plain to cross into the peninsula or crossing uh, so it makes you know crossing the mountains or going through the Tumen Valley 
you know, probably not something that was done much, if at all, just because, um, you know, it's easier to get from mainland, what is now China, in the steppe, uh, into the Korean Peninsula, and also even just from where, like, kind of to the north uh, as well, like um, where modern Russia is, you could probably more easily get there, too. Um, but that kind of covers the Paleolithic sites. Um, so now we're going to go ahead and move on to the Neolithic sites in uh, the Korean Peninsula. Now, at 8000 BC, this includes uh, the very far south of the peninsula, uh, and I should say the southeast of the peninsula, almost between like a little uh, range. They, they occupied between where the modern cities of Ulsan and Bulsan, as well as the island of Jeju. Uh, now, this is the largest island south of the Korean Peninsula. If you see like a map of South Korea, this island is extremely visible. Uh, it's to the west of the Japanese islands of uh, Tsushima. Uh, it is essentially the Korean equivalent to Tsushima. Uh, Jeju, as a proper noun, refers to the island. And if you try to break it down by characters, give you know it gives you... Um, a few different meanings. Uh, it could be offering or art, talent, etc. Uh, nothing to do with a place per se. So the name is likely old and a phonosemantic match from an older dialect or language. So, um, you know, the people who spoke um, the Jeju dialect there, um, they probably heard the name as Jeju and just adopted it. Um, or at least something close to Jeju. Now, what language they might have been using uh, that at this point in time, we will talk about in the future. But whatever it was, was probably fairly isolated. Uh, isolated, excuse me. Um, modern Jeju has its own uh, eponymous dialect of Korean that is very different to the other major dialects of Korean today. Uh, the island is also where the Jilamun is believed to have first emerged. Now, between 8,000 and 6,000 uh, BC is considered the incipient Jilamun period, or excuse me, Jilamun. Um, this sees the rise in the number of Neolithic type tools, as well as a slow shift to a sedentary lifestyle. Hunting gathering is still supreme. They are sedentary hunter gatherers. But there is an increase to a small amount of cultivation of wild plants. Now, this is not true agriculture, but more horticulture and caring for wild uh, fields and sources and stocks. Uh, there is no sign anywhere uh, of steps to control or purposely select traits of crops just yet, much less... Um, creating fields for these crops to expand, you know, where they'll grow naturally. Uh, fishing also starts to become a much larger part of their diet, and this only increases as time goes on. And it's not just fishing. They're, they're getting shellfish and things like that that they're beginning to use. Now, by 6000 BC, the peninsula definitely has hit its modern shape and borders. Uh, that's 
not really debated too much. There is even some debate. It might have been before that that it reached that period, but 6,000 is the absolute latest. Um, but it is also possible that, you know, if it has been a slow kind of uh, rising, uh, that there could be some um, Paleolithic sites or maybe even attempts at Neolithic Jellamoon sites uh, that were kind of subsumed by the rising uh, tides. Now, um, at, at the end of our timeline at 6,000, the small kind of portion in the south, um, in the excuse me, in the southeast where Ulman and Busan are, uh, that has grown. There are more Neolithic sites in that area, and they have even crossed the Nakdong River, which is uh, the major river in the south that kind of cuts through Busan. So they have uh, they have kind of linked up their settlements. Uh, and expanded them out, uh, and then crossed the river. So they're expanding their ranges where they're hunting and settling. Um, but there are also some artifacts further north on the east coast. And it's hard to tell from the maps where these are listed, because there are no modern names, it's just the, the coastline and things like that. But it appears to be near the modern city of Gangdong. Uh, which is in a small plain near the sea, um, right in the foothills of the peninsula's eastern mountains. And you also see artifacts dating to this time frame on the opposite side of the peninsula, where the modern cities of Inchon and Seoul are. Uh, and looking at their ranges and where they advanced as this culture expands, it's easy to see how reliant and comfortable they are near or on the sea. They don't even really to begin to move inland and occupy the region where those Paleolithic sites uh, were found until around 2000 BC. So this is not something that is a rush. Uh, these people are probably very comfortable in the sea. They don't apparently feel the need to move too far inland uh, for a time. And it's possible that they didn't. It's possible that the Paleolithic peoples living up in the mountains maybe were attracted by their, you know, by their more uh, sedentary lifestyle. They may have found it better to um, live with that period. They may have found the tools and things that the Jolmun eventually develop, uh, you know, very useful. Uh, and it could have been peaceful expansion, or it could have been a mix of, you know, peace and war, but uh, that's stuff for the future that we'll talk about. Um, now, I would like to talk about who these people were genetically and who they were related to, but that's very hard to do without making some assumptions, which, uh, you know, what happens when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and me, but uh, for a number of reasons, including soil quality, environment, and just plain bad luck, no usable DNA samples have been found from this period in Korea. In fact, as far as I could tell, the oldest DNA sample I think that they have been able to find and date from Korea comes from their Three Kingdoms period, which is around 1700 years ago, something like that, I think like the 300s AD. So we're talking about the Iron Age and the early, you know, AD CE period. 
So a number of migrations and cultural shifts have happened between that time and the Julman period. And it's hard to know when exactly and what exactly caused the DNA to be what it was in that Three Kingdoms period. So um, people do have theories um, on the Jilmun War, but just be aware that these theories, again, they make a lot of assumptions and you kind of have to work with what you've got. And of course, um, much like China, um, archaeological finds in you know, in Korea themselves are something that is fairly new, that this is something that is just beginning to really take off, you know, um, which is something you see all through Asia, um, that they're, they're getting more interested in their Paleolithic and um, ancient historical paths, you know, before writing and things like that. So, um, one theory is that they were an indigenous group who had been in the peninsula since humans first expanded out of Africa, and that they had moved south, and then, um, or excuse me, after they expanded out of Africa, and then they moved into Asia, and then uh, they followed maybe um, instead of going through East Asia and Southeast Asia, they had actually followed along uh, separately along the um, the Tarim Basin and uh, the Tibetan Plateau and that they were following you know large herds and things like that uh, into the peninsula and then once the Younger Dryas hit they kind of moved back south and kind of grouped together um, and then expanded back out of the peninsula after the climate became more mild. Another theory is that the Jilmun are a offshoot of the Jomon of Japan. Uh, then there is a theory, and one that I think that makes the most sense, or at least gets the most right, is that the Paleolithic Koreans, uh, Julmun and Jomon, are descendants of the first people to come into the region, making them all some type of cousin, uh, you know, cousins, essentially. Um, the Jomon moving into the islands of Japan, uh, further south, had an environment that was a little bit more easy to live and survive in. Of course, as the Younger Dryas ended and the environment becomes more temperate and Korea becomes more livable, uh, the Jul Moon were able to expand much the same way that, as the Jomon had, except uh, they did it to the north. Uh, the people on Jeju were probably always involved at you know at least some small levels, if not more. Uh, of trade with the Jomon. And the Jomon, as a people, had vast trade links across all the islands and communities in modern Japan, and also including the ones, um, you know, that a lot of people don't necessarily think of unless they're experts on the region, like the Ryukin Islands, the Kuril Islands, and Sakhalin Islands, you know, further to the north, some of which are now Russian. Uh, and not to mention probably uh, groups along the Kamchatka Peninsula, even that far north. Um, so, uh, the Jeju who were involved in these links recognized that, yeah, there were a lot of people to the south and all these other islands, so it might be easier to move to the peninsula and its seacoast uh, because it was a little less uh, occupied. Um, at least that's that's one of the theories. Um, 
But for now, though, I think uh, that's kind of a good point to kind of draw a into the Jomon. Um, we will return to them. They're a very long-lasting group. They are dominant in Korea for uh, a while yet longer. Um, and I don't know about their houses just yet. From what I was reading, a lot of the literature kind of had them as more um, mobile till right around, uh, I think, 5,500, 5,000 uh, uh, BC. Uh, so they, they may not have developed their homes yet, but their homes are extremely similar to what you will find in uh, the Jomo people, who have, at this point, uh, begun to uh, develop you know very distinctive homes, sedentary communities. Um, we are now, um, or I should say, about 500 years after our our um, our current season starts, uh, 7,500, we are out of the incipient Jomo, and we've moved into the um, initial Jomo phase. So this is something that you do see a very distinct kind of culture uh, rise up. Um, Although it should be pointed out, and I, I think this is something I have a, you know, I sometimes make a, I make this mistake too in not pointing out, that the Jomon may not have been completely uh, homogenous, uh, and that's true of a lot of these things. Uh, the Jomon could have been a number of different groups that moved into the peninsula over, you know, a couple hundred years at different places uh, and in different times. And then, you know, occupy different islands and river valleys on those islands and so on and so forth. And then once they all moved in, then they kind of developed a, um, a kind of shared cultural uh, ethno-linguistic background. Um, and, uh, in fact, DNA evidence seems to support that, at least to an extent, Um Jomon ancestry is listed as one of the primary ancestry groups that Melinda Yang in her publication that I talked about last week has laid out. Um, but their their finds only show that um, they had a they found more people in Japan. Uh, I believe uh, the oldest ones were found in Kyushu, which is uh, one of Japan's four main islands. It's the one that's kind of furthest south. Um, it's the second smallest, or I guess third largest. I think it's slightly bigger than Hokkaido, which is the one far to the north. But um, that old that individual dates from around 6,000 BC. Uh, but they have found others between that period. So they kind of have a nice little... Um, spread in Japan in the archipelago. You have 8,000 years ago, which is, you know, 2,000 plus six, that's 8,000 years. So you have some people from that time period, you have some a little bit later, and I think they even have some as young as uh, uh, 1,000 BC. Um, and there there is a certain level of genetic overlap between all of these you know people they found and the modern Japanese are descended from these people at least in part um, as we'll talk about in the future uh, they are not the primary ancestor 
of the modern Japanese people. I think uh, at most, most Japanese people would have maybe around 30% Jomon ancestry. If that, that's a large amount. And it's not something that is... Um, that is true for everyone. Some people have more Jomon ancestry than others. Um, and that may not be necessarily because of war and conquest, though I'm sure that that was part of it. Uh, it's probably because the Jomon people probably did not have huge numbers. Um, they, you know, they probably had communities of a few thousand at a time. Uh, spread all across the archipelago and then some smaller ones in between the larger ones uh, so just you had more people moving in uh, later uh, with the rice production but that's stuff we can all dive into later um, but uh, the Jomon like the Julmoon uh, their name comes from uh, the the pottery form uh, I think um the name literally means cord marked as opposed to comb marked, but the, the designs are very similar. Um, the uh, the Jomon in the incipient period, they appear to have a few different designs. I think four main ones. Um, they have cord impressions. They have uh, linear comb impressions. They've got like nail impressions. Uh, but once you get to the initial Jomon period, you begin to see them kind of experiment more and come up with um, other types of um, artistic expression, at least when it comes to their pottery. Um, and again, there is some regional variation uh, to, that takes place there. Um, now, the Jomon, they also have um, a very uh, highly uh, focused uh, society on uh, things like hunting and fishing. Um, shell middens are you know, found in all of their locations. I think virtually even the smallest ones have some type of uh, shell middens, and that's where you find a lot of evidence. They've, they found a lot of great artifacts. Um, from those middens. Um, but they were also uh, big on fish as well. They did not just hunt shellfish. I think salmon were considered like a really important uh, part of their diet. Uh, but that also includes uh, other animals such as uh, deer, boar. Uh, and there is some evidence they, they may have tried uh, their hand at like uh, managing the wild boars um, that they may have even gotten you know some level of domestication although that is again hard to prove uh, with pigs um, but it is a theory um, uh, but they also had uh, certain wild plants that they were kind of in that horticultural mindset um, Things uh, they have like some type of tubers. I think they're kind of like yams, um, and there are of course a ton of forests on the islands, especially in the south. Uh, I think Kyushu even has some uh, tropical areas deep in the south, uh, and maybe Shikoku as well. Shikoku is the smallest of the um, of the Japanese main islands. 
now um, they also have um, very distinct homes in Jomon culture. Uh, they're kind of pit dwellings. They would, uh, you know, dig out kind of a circle in the ground, dig it into it. Uh, into the earth a couple of feet and then they would make their flooring and their uh, entrances and then their homes would be um, kind of circular uh, at least floor plan wise although I think some of their um, roofing could almost be kind of square into a uh, circle um, to kind of have like light and things come through the roof and also leave holes for uh, smoke and the light to come out and these will only become more elaborate as time goes on um, but yeah so that is uh, the Jomon there um, again we're in the the um, early Jomon or I'm sorry the initial Jomon period and this period will last for a while longer um, the Jomon period is extremely long-lasting in Japan. It even, uh, obviously, it's been around for quite a while. Um, I think uh, even last season, it was a couple of thousand years old. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, but when we return to Japan, next time we will be in what is the early period, and that's going to uh, see the islands kind of um, reach kind of the just a really great time in terms of environmental conditions and we'll talk more about that then um, and how the Jomon advance in terms of their art styles as well as the type of plants uh, that they're working with and what they do um, but yeah so I think that's a good place to kind of end for tonight's episode um, little right around 30 minutes I think that's a pretty good pretty good coverage um next week we will be talking about uh the peoples living to the uh north of uh japan and korea and china uh right along kind of the eurasian steppe um and from there we will kind of cross the entire steps and then do um We'll do. Uh, we'll move to uh, Australia and those places, and then we'll move on to Europe uh, and then to the Americas. Um, there may be two episodes on the steps. I, I'm not quite sure just yet. It'll depend on how much I guess I ramble. Um, and then Europe. Uh, I'm sorry. Then Australia will probably be two. One to three, we'll say, just to be safe. Uh, and then Europe, I'm not quite sure yet. Um, but it will be, you know, it'll probably be a few more episodes than that. But um, we're making pretty good progress here. Uh, I know I've been kind of stuck in East Asia for a while. Uh, but I have uh, been really pleased with the what we've been going over. And um, I did get a little bit of feedback from um, a couple of episodes ago about Southeast Asia and Vietnam specifically. Um, and I look forward to going over those notes. So I would like to thank... Uh, uh, one of our listeners, Fong, for sending those uh, documents over to me. I look forward to reviewing them. Um, so I may have a correction episode to do uh, in kind of our little transitional period between season uh, three and four. But uh, but we'll get to that in the future. Um, 
Uh, oh, yes. Uh, Stitcher, which is one of the apps that, uh, that the show can be found on. Uh, if you are not aware, uh, that is owned, I believe, by SiriusXM, same parrot company. Uh, they're shutting Stitcher down. Um, I think you can still find the show on Pandora, which is also owned by the same parrot company. I don't know why you're shutting one down and not the other, but just be aware uh, Stitcher will be moving away in August, and I know RSS has already removed it from like the metrics, but I believe it is still automatically being uploaded, uh, but that is obviously going to go away. Um, I'm trying to see if there's another service I can start making sure it's loaded on, but I know Stitcher was one of my more popular platforms. Another feature uh, that may be changing, uh, unfortunately, will be the possibly be YouTube. Um, I've heard rumors that Microsoft is getting rid of their free um, video editing system that I use because, again, it's not very it's not very complicated. My process, I literally just put a logo of my um, my logo up on the screen and I just run the audio for the duration of. Um, for the, sorry, I run the picture for the duration of my audio. Uh, I just make it all one clip, one clip, one scene. Um, and I like that because those videos include uh, automatically captioning them. And the caption's not perfect, um, but it is something. Um, but I've heard that Microsoft may be doing away with that program. Um, I will try to find a replacement, something that's not... Um, expensive or hopefully free that I can find uh, but in the meantime I might be having to use RSS's um, automatic YouTube upload which will cause it to be delayed slightly on YouTube I do apologize uh, for the YouTube listeners there of which there are a few um, so that may be changing but it may also not be so we'll, we'll see but that's just something to keep an eye on um, while you know for the future. Um, if you have any feedback, uh, like uh, Thong and others, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter, or you can leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos. I will respond in any of those places. Um, but uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you continue to listen and enjoy. Um... And if you're interested in some more non, I guess, podcasty type cop comments, I have been streaming the last couple of Mondays. Um, I've been playing um, a kind of a historical game or pseudo historical um, Far Cry Primal on YouTube. I've been streaming it there. Uh, I tried to do it a little bit Thursday too, but um, game kept crashing. I'm not sure if it was what was causing that. Uh, I'm hoping it won't happen again tomorrow. Uh, but we'll see. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, thank you all for joining me. I hope you will continue to do so. And I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Thank you all so much. Have a good day. Goodbye.